I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Well, it's good to be back with you again. With your various home study courses and your current mentor program, Commercial Property Gold, you provide a considerable amount of training material. Why do you go to so much trouble? Well, that's an easy question to answer because what I find is that investors basically fall into three groups. You've got the first group, which are so-called professional investors, or if they're not yet professional, they are or have been very successful in their own careers and they don't see the need for guidance or are embarrassed to seek out help in this area. Now, I suppose back in the early 90s when I made the transition into acquiring property or helping people acquire property, this was a bit of a breakthrough. I realised that these senior people, and they might be senior partners or managing partners in legal or accounting firms or have run a very successful highly visible business and they would not attend any of these free seminars that people put on and the reason for that is that they were fearful of running into one of their colleagues or clients who would say to them why are you here I mean you should know all this stuff because they've been so successful in their principal area of business. And while there is an assumption of transference of skill, if you like, from what they currently do into the area of investment, whether it be property or shares, there's no logic and reason in that. But they were concerned that their ego or their image would be tarnished if they were seen publicly to be seeking this sort of advice. So that's why I started to develop firstly writing books and then developing home study courses and they actually came out of the full day workshop so that it gave these people the opportunity to anonymously if you like to gather together the information that they needed to feel more comfortable to step into commercial property. They might have already been dabbling in it but to do it in a serious manner. So they're the first group. Then there is, at the other end, the group that are starting out and wanting to make the transition probably from residential property into commercial property. They have their own house, maybe a beach house. They maybe, as the funds have been available, bought the odd apartment and they may have two apartments as investments. But they have now reached a point in their life where they can do something more substantial and they realise that managing residential property is is a pretty high-maintenance, costly exercise. Tenant turnovers, short leases, you pay all the outgoings. It's It's not necessarily what they want. Now, those people in many cases, know what they know as far as knowledge about commercial property. In some cases, 
they know what they don't know. But what I find is that in many cases, they don't know what they don't know. And that's where providing this material enables them to fill in the gaps that they weren't even aware of so that they can accelerate the transition from residential into commercial property. And then there's a third group in the middle which has started out in commercial property. They find they like it and they want to make an even greater success of what they're already doing. And so it's more rounding out their education, giving them the confidence, giving them a sounding board so that they can accelerate their success with investing in commercial property. Now, if you go to the bookshops or online, there's plenty of material coming out of the US and some out of the UK, but there's very little Australian-based information on commercial property. And as I say to people, you need to think of commercial property investing as a game with very clear rules. Now, in order to play the game, you need to know what those rules are. But for you to be successful, I mean really successful, you need to master those rules. And I guess all I've done is distill the experience and in the trenches activity that I've had over the last 40 plus years and bring it down into hands-on use tomorrow stuff that people can easily digest, understand and implement very quickly. So what is the first mistake most amateur investors are likely to make? That would probably be poor property selection. And I'm not talking about the purchase of the property. I'm talking about just getting onto your shortlist because most people don't understand how to to make that selection in the first place. And, and that probably stems from having an understanding of what your investment objectives are and your buying criteria should be and matching the properties up against those and ensuring that they meet them. And look, I understand this can be difficult and, and complex and initially I created that as a matrix, the investment criteria down the, the vertical axis and the buying criteria across the the top and I've since developed the app the high return filter app and that enables you to very quickly in in many cases without even leaving your home or your office or even perhaps sitting outside the property in the car on your iPad or iPhone to quickly rate the properties in an unemotional basis. With most commercial properties, you have an information memorandum, so you have all the details there, the length of the lease, the rent reviews, the rent. You know, So you can, you can easily rate the various properties that are under consideration. And it's important that it's done unemotionally. And it's a bit like doing a, an interview for a, for a job. And let's say you've got eight or ten people that have applied for the interview if you're doing it and if if you're a guy you probably either remember the last one or two people best or if it was a pretty girl in the thing she catches your eye and and vice versa for for a woman it's the same thing 
and the uh, handsome guy sticks in it, who might? But the thing is that people end up on the shortlist, or properties in this case end up on the shortlist, for the wrong reasons. There is subjectivity entering into it. And so what I found is that the, the high return filter helps people unemotionally decide whether or not the property ought to be on the short list in the first place. What about when it comes to negotiating the deal? Well, that's a pretty open question. I mean, negotiating in and of itself is a whole new and wide-ranging topic. And I think what we've tried to do over past podcasts is to every few weeks pick up another aspect of negotiation and you know weave that into what we've been talking about in the weeks just before. So it's not something I can really cover in great depth other than to say that in essence a negotiation is made up of three fundamental components, power and the perception of power and who has it, uh, information, and that's gold information. That's about the property, it's about the prospect or the vendor, the agent if there's an agent involved, and having all the information available at your fingertips so that you're not having to struggle and sift and sort through documents to find it. And then finally, time. It's power shifts as you get closer to deadlines, and that is part of what you try to find out in the information-gathering phase as to what are the perceived deadlines of the other side so that you know when the concessions are likely to start coming. But, um, you know, time is, is an interesting thing because most people see a negotiation as an event. They want to meet and resolve the outcome for the purchase of the property there and then. Negotiation is a process and sometimes you need to prolong the process and gain a greater involvement and commitment as far as time and money is concerned of the other side because the more time, effort and money that they invest into a negotiation, the less likely they are to let you walk away. Therefore, the more likely they are to to make concessions to reach a deal with you as they have such a an amount of effort and time and money invested into it. So, you know, it's it's a vital component and that's why I have a separate home study course just on negotiating by itself. But you need to also understand that it's no good negotiating what you think is a great deal if, in fact, the lender's valuation comes in at a figure beneath what is on the contract for the purchase of the property itself. And that's, again, is a whole further discussion that needs to be had. Should you be fully investigating the physical soundness of the property before you finalise the commercial terms of the deal? Look, you certainly can, and many people do take that approach. But it's more the approach adopted from overseas when you're buying commercial property, especially in the UK. In other words, they do all their homework before making a deal. Now, 
there are two issues here. One, you it's going to cost you money. You're going to run up unnecessary bills in engaging the the experts, whether they're architects, construction, engineers, whatever it is, to give you the comfort before making an offer that the property is in tip-top condition. And the problem also is it takes time. And you can't put pressure on these people. You know, they'll give you their report when the report's good and ready. So it may be that it takes 10 days to a fortnight, even a bit longer. And during that time, if the property is any good, particularly in the current market, it won't be there, it'll be gone. And so my approach is that you effectively say to the vendor, look, we believe everything you say about the property. We think it's great too. However, in making our offer, we just reserve the right to check it out. We just want to do our due diligence to verify everything you're saying is 100% correct. Now, the test there is if the vendor balks at providing you with a due diligence period after the contracts have been exchanged, well, then you know that you're likely to find that things wrong with it. Because if the vendor believes the property is going to come up smelling roses, he or she won't have a problem granting the due diligence because it's in their mind it's a fait accompli, it'll be fine. But the other thing also you have to bear in mind is that if you enter into a negotiation having done your due diligence beforehand, the unspoken assumption or the implication is that as far as you're concerned, the property is fine. What I prefer to do, as I said, is finalise the commercial terms, have it subject to due diligence, and then when the vendor thinks the property is done and dusted, if you do come up with anything that's uh, found to be wrong with the property, you then have a second bite at the cherry in either having the vendor rectify the problem or make an allowance at settlement for you to rectify it. So this way you have the best of both worlds. You put your foot on the property, you have the ability to, at a a reasonable time frame, to do your due diligence. And then if anything untoward is found, you have a source of remedy. And if, if you can't have it rectified to your satisfaction, the way I have the due diligence clauses drawn, you can simply walk away from the deal. Now you say, well, you still incur costs. Well, yes, you do, but then it is more an insurance premium against something being wrong. You're not just potentially wasting the money because you don't have control of the property. You do have control of the property. It's the due diligence occurring after you are the effectively the owner subject to a satisfactory due diligence study. Now, let's talk about possible mistakes when arranging your finance. Well, I sort of alluded to one of the mistakes people make before starting a negotiation is to not know what the topmost figure a valuer will support. And that's what I do with all my clients is to, before entering into the negotiation, is to discover 
from the valuer the figure, maximum figure up to which they're prepared to support. Now, my client may well choose to pay more than that, but he, he or she then understands that in doing so, it may not be supported when it comes to going for the finance. The next mistake is that as a purchaser, you never go cap in hand to your financier. The first thing you do, having already briefed the valuer, is have that valuer prepare for you a formal valuation after you've purchased the property and the due diligence has proven fine. And they give it to you and your broker as a soft copy and it is that which is then handed across to the various financiers from whom you may be seeking to borrow the funds. And it ought not to just be the bank that you always deal with. And that's why using your broker is much better because they know which lending institution at that very moment has the best rate. And the best rate may only be available for a two or three week window because they have to balance their books and therefore they're, they're keen to do deals. So if you can secure that and by having a soft copy of the valuation, which is in your name at the stage, you then are effectively saying, without saying, to the financiers, look, don't muck us around. Give us your best deal, both commercially and the documentation that will work for us, because until we get that, we're not going to arrange for the valuer to assign the valuation across to you. Because ultimately the lender needs the valuation in their name. But it is the wrong way to do it, to go to the lender, allow them to arrange the valuation because then they control the transaction. This way you control the, the borrowing exercise and can avoid a lot of unnecessary and unpleasant surprises along the way. Great stuff. I love it. And what attracts me most is the simplicity of how you go about things. Well, as I keep saying, it's not overly complicated. You just need to keep an open mind and have the ability to think on your feet.